Welcome to the Caring Greatly podcast, a podcast for leaders who seek to transform healthcare with humanity. Educated at the University of Kansas School of Medicine and trained at the Medical University of South Carolina and the Harvard Fellowship in Palliative Care Education and Practice, Dr. Jennifer Clark has been in the world of healthcare for more than 20 years. With MedPeds training and board certification in the subspecialty of hospice and palliative medicine, Dr. Clark is a physician and healthcare delivery consultant serving in various roles as a clinician educator, administrator, and innovator at the local, national, and international levels. When not serving in her volunteer role at Clare House, Tulsa, Oklahoma's home for the dying, Dr. Clark teaches at the University of Tulsa and collaborates with various organizations dedicated to fostering innovative approaches to human flourishing. Recently, she began the process of authoring a book on the power of suffering. In this episode of Caring Greatly, Dr. Clark shares insights from research she recently published on leadership loneliness in partnership with the Institute for Healthcare Excellence. She delves into the ways that leader loneliness creates a self-reinforcing cycle in which isolation leads to self-devaluation, attempts to compensate through more work and less sleep, which then further compromises connection. As a result, says Dr. Clark, leaders become less effective and resilient, decreasing the efficacy of their teams and lowering organizational resilience. Like burnout in clinicians, leader loneliness results from structural elements that can be addressed through deliberate connection and positive organizational change. Dr. Jennifer Clark is a leader who cares greatly. Welcome, Dr. Clark. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Liz. Happy to be here. I'm really excited to dig into this. You recently published a paper on leadership loneliness, mm. which is not a topic we see discussed a lot as everyone's talking about burnout and um, sustainability and all of the issues that are challenging the current healthcare system. Why the topic of leader loneliness and why now? Uh, great question. Um, so I think it was post-pandemic there were several of us just kind of around a table trying to to kind of uh, invoking David Foster Wallace, this idea of naming the water. Like what mm. if there's, there's the there's something amiss in the healthcare system that um, we weren't seeing but feel and knew was intrinsically different following the pandemic. And so um had some interviews with people, obviously my own personal experience as um, a healthcare administrator, um, just what was it? What is it? What is it? And um, because of my background as an, as a, you know, kind of a med peds by basic training, and then I'm a hospice and palliative medicine physician. So I'm always really interested in human development and uh, a big fan of Maslow. And I've always used Maslow's hierarchy of need, even in its modern version to kind of assess out kind of how people are suffering. And I was like, I was hearing the phenomenon of my colleagues kind of naming the basic need for connection and belonging going unmet. They were, I mean, when the, when the language would come out in these conversations with people, it was like, oh, these leaders are fundamentally missing their basic need for connection. And um, when Vivek Murthy came out, the U.S. Surgeon General came out with his um, paper earlier in 2023 um, that really named the epidemic of loneliness. All of a sudden, we started seeing this. Oh, this is this is what's going on. 
and naming it in such a way that helps us debunk some of the taboo myth around the word being lonely mm. and the societal norms of the quote unquote loner, that this is somehow a personal um, infliction or personal kind of problem or character flaw. Um, that loneliness is actually a very fundamental part of who we are and is a reflection of the system one lives within in the community and one lives within. Um, and our leaders were suffering that. And so we felt really confident in putting this out there as something to consider um, and really testing the idea that, hey, maybe this is what's going on particularly as an extension of the work that had been laid down for the previous two two decades around patient experience, quality and safety, and um, the pain, you know, kind of living as a physician of clinician burnout. It, this seems to be the next layer that we're, you know, continuing to peel the onion with, um, and I think is a core component to the dehumanization of medicine. And that so. makes a lot of sense. I'm curious, because um, you're talking about this happening post-pandemic, is this much like burnout has existed for decades and we're naming it more post-pandemic? Is this something that pre-existed the pandemic or was there a condition of the pandemic that actually exacerbated or made this phenomenon of leader loneliness happen or happen to a much greater degree? Um, based on the science, if you actually look back, um, Harvard Business Review did a review in 2012 that looked at leadership across multiple industries that named loneliness as a key mm. problem. So my guess would be is that it's always existed. Yeah. Um, what the pandemic did was twofold. Um, and in the paper, we just kind of briefly catch on it. Well, the first part is Murthy not only talked about the loneliness, but also talked about the impact the pandemic had on the healthcare system from the you know kind of vantage point of his positions um, in that there was a reckoning, right? So um, a reckoning between this fallacy of work-life balance, particularly for leadership, right? So saying, I'm no longer going to give up my most precious relationships um, and quote unquote, the life part of that fallacy um, to satisfy work needs. Um, mm -hmm. And then the other part where I think is really interesting and the piece that kind of I was I sat with for a really long time was Brene Brown talked about um, the invoking of nostalgia, meaning Prior to the pandemic, healthcare leaders were afforded um, as a level of status and kind of, um, a, you know, kind of a camaraderie within its kind of upper echelons um, that would, you know, kind of allowed the allowed them to kind of gloss over the the belief of loneliness, like it it mm. it hit it quite a bit. Um, and what the pandemic did was undo significant amounts of um, expectations, right? So I think the quote that Brene Brown talks about is the, you know, kind of the hidden message in nostalgia is wishing things, you know, and people to be the way they used to be. And right. the pandemic completely undid that in a way that no other event um, has in healthcare. It just revealed this um, kind of shallow, kind of band-aid it kind of film if you will that hid the loneliness i think and it just you know kind of ripped the you know kind of ripped the band-aid off straight away after the pandemic and you could no longer not see it so. yeah yeah it's interesting i'm thinking my mind is going to all of the sort of 
levels of this, right? The social contract feels like it was broken at yeah. both a micro and macro level around yeah. like the civility that happens in the clinical counter encounter that we can't count on. And and again, all of these existed, but feel like they just exploded post pandemic. And and then there was the you know the availability of resources, right? The the ability to get PPE as a leader to it to assume you could get the resources you needed that the supply chains would work and things that I would feel like is the sort of macro social contract that feels broken that had imp implications both frontline and leaders. And then there's just this broader sense of despite these, I mean, what were truly heroic efforts by leaders, frontline folks, all the folks in all of the healthcare and frankly, most of, of you know, frontline workers in most industries that then were, were still vilified as if it was the healthcare system's fault that the the pandemic was continuing and that um, vaccines were politicized and all that kind of thing that I would imagine was part of the dissolution of that veil that you're talking about. Um, but it's just so interesting to see the parallels frontline and leaders. And, and it's, I think you're really astute to point out that like we're talking about all these things that happened to the front lines. Of course, there's ramifications on leaders. And yet, if we don't talk about that, we're not going to create the holistic um, healed system of the future that many of us are hoping for. So digging into this a little bit more, when you look at leader loneliness, what's the prevalence and impact? How do you gauge that? You know, I think that's, I mean, I, we're still trying to figure out what that looks like. Right. Uh, you know, naming the phenomenon and testing the phenomenon is the first stage of it. But what we see, if we, if we take from what we know about industry, you know, regardless if it's healthcare or otherwise, and just look at leadership in general, the largest thing that 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 really happens is a compromise in decision making. Um, so when you have a, a leader that is in a system that pervades this, you know, loneliness where it isolates the leader on purpose, either because of roles, responsibilities, or you know, kind of relationships that they have, um, particularly if they're younger, we see it. We see it in newer leaders um, significantly, um, but as you know, kind of as they experience this loneliness, the big compromise we see is when you're disconnected, you can't get into creative and innovative thinking because you're in your basic survival needs. Just as simple right. as that, right? It's just like firefighting. Let's get to the next day. That's not a priority. You're, you know, kind of when you're when you're you know, kind of just from a neuroscience standpoint, when you're lonely, you're in a state of self-preservation. And when you're like that, you know, kind of you're in a fight or flight or some people go into a dissociative state that moves them from the ability to relate to others. Um, and and as a result, all innovation and creativity goes away. And decision is focused on the most easy, gratifying, in the moment solution versus long-term kind of benefit um, and being able to weather, you know, kind of with resiliency, um, you know, sometimes those short-term pains for long-term gains kind of concept. And so when you look at, at what we see in leadership loneliness across other industries, it's a compromise of decision-making that further leads to a disconnection with, you know, teams implementation then becomes compromised, particularly if it's if it's not easy and may have negative consequence and risk taking involved in those type of things. Um, and as a result, um, 
we see this this concept of languishing <laughs> languishing organizations where yeah you know you kind of meet the letter of the law but the spirit of the law has completely gone out the window and in healthcare you know kind of in retrospect we looked at systems who were languishing prior to the pandemic it's the challenge of something so you know kind of fraught that really collapses those languishing systems down. And, you know, kind of in retrospect, we were able to see, kind of see this, meaning, okay, what happened to this system? Why did it collapse under the pandemic when someone down the street who has a similar, if you go, you know, kind of do cohort kind of matched retrospective studies of systems, and you can see this loneliness in the leadership's kind of problem prior to the pandemic. They were a languishing system in the pandemic, the pandemic hits, and all of a sudden they become a system that's collapsing. And so it's it's a canary in the coal mine kind of experience. So. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, as a leader, if you're in this place where you've been pushed to that turning inward, right, that survival state, yeah. um, there are so many even external factors that are pushing you towards that short-term decision-making, right? We have, especially on the financial front, right? Like there's so much short-term thinking around metrics and and even some of the safety metrics can be very short-term in their thinking, right? The immediate kind of uh, reaction and response as opposed to some of the more difficult long-term strategic changes. So I can see where you end up almost stuck between this external force that's that's reinforcing that internal survival state in a way that feels like almost immediate gratification, but yet that's alienating you further and further and further from the folks to whom you are most connected, you should be most connected, most beholden, most um, uh, supportive of, and that's got to be a cycle that just continues. Yeah. You know, kind of, it's, it's really interesting. Um <laughs> You, you've named a couple of major tensions. One, you know, kind of during the pandemic, the leaders were, you know, stuck. They they were the the, the stuck between the social contract of the public um, and, it, you know, kind of have taken their oath to protect the environment of healing. And that, you know, kind of that bur bubble got massively burst. I mean, they were, right. they were the bubble that got popped, you know, essentially. And so there was that tension. And then this tension between, you know, what the system demands and what the system really should be and that, you know, kind of we've been living and breathing for decades. Um, and so, you know, it, it's interesting because loneliness has a, you know, kind of the science around loneliness. Um, there's a couple that was out of, that is out of Chicago. The wife is still alive. The husband, his name's John Cassiopo. Um, amazing human died way too early. Um, his he really is the father of of social connection and loneliness. And his TED talks and his writings are beautiful. Um, he talks about this. It's interesting, you know. Kind of loneliness is the drive of the unmet need for connection and belonging, but it also puts us in a self of uh, a state of of hypervigilance mm. <laughs> and self preservation. Um, and so the very thing that's, you know, kind of, we get in this, in this, then this perpetuating loop of loneliness where we get stuck in, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I become self-devalued 
essentially opens right. down to I give up my sleep, my relationships, the thing, my fundamental basic needs that support me outside the institution. As a result, then, you know, give more to work, get less out of it. And you, this loop of resentment and isolation um, and further disconnection occurs. And so it's this really weird paradox that happens neurobiologically that you can see, as you just said, um, when you're stuck between the tension, not only of the social contract, but these conflicting values, right. the value of the financial dollar and the dollars per toe per day um, relative to being of service and creating a healing environment that very few leaders have been able to figure out that paradox and the both end of that. Um, and when you're lonely, it's turning inward, guns outward, and just surviving right. the day. So yeah, for sure. sense. So let's let's tie this to, you know, again, a lot of a lot of systems are trying to grapple with and by no means have the solution to, but but they're looking at and trying to invest in the safety and well-being of the teams, the frontline yeah. folks, the clinicians, even the environmental services, the techs, the nutrition services, the folks that, that, you know, they're having trouble hiring because environments don't feel safe and supportive and well. What is the effect of leader loneliness on the safety and well-being of the teams they lead? Yeah. I mean, just what you said, the, there's actually really good science around that um, from Sepia and Cameron, who hopefully, Sipala, I think, and Cameron, I can't remember how to pronounce her name appropriately. But she, they, they really um, talk about this positive relational leadership, um, and you know, kind of its antithesis, right? So, what does it look like when that's not present? And what you you hit the nail on the head that there is this either conscious or unconscious awareness of the stress of a leader, and as a result, people who are supported by that leader adapt and change probably maladaptive ways in order to cope as a team right. with that leader's stress and so it just trickles down downhill and so you know the biggest hurdle i think you know kind of those of us who are talking about this have to overcome is getting leaders to actually name it for themselves right there's a lot of vulnerability in being able yeah. to say publicly, I'm lonely because it goes against everything, particularly in American culture about leaders. Like we have to be the marble man, you know, kind of like strong and indifferent and can take on every, you know, kind of this whole. Right. It's not personal. It's business. It's like, the, <laughs> right. To, to quote, what was it? You've got mail or whatever. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> And so. It's that's the that's I think that's the to me that's the going to be the hardest part yeah. of this work is creating enough of a safe space for leaders to do some some personal self reflection and say yeah okay yeah this is affecting me yeah. and how do we create an environment where we can address this um, at all levels because if I'm feeling it. You know, kind of the studies have been done on C-suite, but you know, as you and I both right. know, that's that sandwich manager, frontline person, kind of director position. That's so really. challenging, <laughs> and that hasn't been studied yet. It's definitely yeah. an area that I think um, is really rich for mining some of the more nuanced aspects of what loneliness looks like. 
Interesting. Well, and that's why I want to push into that because earlier you said, you know, the same way that we've come to understand um, or should have understood from the beginning, I think Maslow's early yeah. research suggested that burnout was a, an individual manifestation of a system problem. You mm -hmm. said earlier in this conversation, this is a system factor that creates the leader loneliness. So what system changes are needed to limit leader loneliness? And, and I want to make sure we balance that because I think even in the burnout space, it's a both and of individual and system change. Yeah, for right? sure. What res responsibilities do individual leaders have? Um, so how does that system individual dichotomy play out in the leadership yeah. front? I think it's really interesting. I mean, I, you know, to your point, I think first we have to allow the leaders a safe space to say, yes, this is really what's going on. And if if they're willing to step in as an individual and just be able to name the direct experience of that, then the system needs to come back and say, okay, what are the elements that need to be paid attention to in the system that needs to be addressed so that the relief of that pressure, that relief of that hypervigilance and that safety gets then created at a system level where loneliness then gets aired and connection can reoccur. Um, so when we look, when I looked just at the, phenomenon of, you know, kind of where this breaks down, it comes down to what are the roles, what are the responsibilities, and what are the relationships that leaders, what what are the myths contained within all three of those things that need to be named, right? So undoing some of the myths that we just talked about with the euphemisms that we have across our culture. Right? <laughs> um, and some of it being, you know, kind of, you know, kind of we get into gender, we get into racial and inequity yeah. issues. Um, that open, you know, that door gets wide, blown wide open um, in a lot of this. And so, you know, it becomes how do we create environments where we on purpose talk about Maslow's hierarchies of needs? You know, are we physically safe? Are we psychologically safe? Do we feel the ability to exercise our own agency at a minimum, much less going on to being able to explore and innovate, you know, work in service of others and, and develop purpose? Um, but when you look at the phenomenon across several people who are doing this work, Brene Brown, I talked about earlier in her Dare to Lead work, this is happening. Vivek Murthy um, not only took what he did with naming the epidemic of loneliness, but also put out um, a workforce well-being kind of matrix that kind of names kind of these things that really people can take and, and say, okay, in our, our organization, let's take this one small part um, of disconnection and connection and figure out how to plays out at our system level. Another organization called Work Human. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. Yeah. yeah. They, they've they done some things. And so, you know, kind of in the paper, we've named these kind of general buckets um, of things that people can pay attention to um, with regards to cultural norms and re, you know everything from how do we hold meetings to how do we schedule our days because it seems about attention and time really reflecting and you know kind of undoing some of the major tension between those things that we just talked about the social con you know the social contract that's broken down as well as the values of the healthcare that's spoken but what are the values that are actually lived <laughs> You know, right. kind of thing and giving air and space to those things, everything from collaboration and appreciation exercises, moving away from work life balance to one of work life harmony and recognizing that work is an essential part 
of an effective life. And so how do we do that and allow people to maintain autonomy? Um, I think one of the things, particularly for leaders, is helping them name, doing direct exercises with them to kind of get back to what matters most to them. Because one of the things that happens in loneliness is we lose not only the relationship with others, but we lose our relationship with ourselves, And we we lose our sense of self, you know, because it requires us to be connected to others in order to be able to fully embrace and harness our sense of self in order to be an agent in the world. And so helping them to reconnect to themselves so that then they can be compassionate and connect and empathetic to others. So really meaning making exercises with yeah. leaders that I think we found has been um, has been really helpful. And through the natural piece of that, saying that you cannot, you know, kind of attend to the higher, higher, you know, the higher needs of of growth and thrive and thriving if you don't pay attention to the lower needs of surviving and you know kind of basic and becoming needs and so giving people the permission to just focus on basic safety and psychological <laughs> security and saying that's actually where it's worth spending time and resources um, because once those are in place the natural tendencies as humans is those other exploratory needs will then by nature open our, you know, open themselves to us. So. Right. But I think it's also consciously recognizing that you can't take those for granted, that you have to cultivate them. Yeah. Not only, again, it, the, I think both individually and within a system, because the yeah. system is, is, is the water in many yeah. cases. Yeah. Um, and so being able to, to say, this is, this is our organization values this and show it through the actions of, you know, I'm picturing, um, you know, leader retreats or, as you said, beginnings yeah. of of uh, meetings and things. And then I'm also picturing perceptions of equity as to what yeah. levels of organization get what kinds of access to these kinds of resources and things that would, you know, if you're being thoughtful about it, both from a from an individual perspective, right, which is hard to do if you're lonely as a leader. But right. if you're thinking about it structurally and systemically, this this is this is leadership at every level. Yeah. And this is something that has to play out in a way that feels like it is a, a an execution of, of organizational values as opposed to a privileging of some over others, right? Yeah. Fair. Yeah, totally. You know, it's, you know, kind of for those who don't know the the reference about the water, David Foster Wallace was an amazing author and he gave a gave a graduation speech at Kent. And um and in it, he he talks about a cartoon where he's like, you know, if you can imagine kind of for those of us who grew up with Farside, <laughs> you know, two, two side-by-side pictures, you've got um, an old fish, older, kind of wiser looking depicted fish with two younger fish swimming at him. And then, and the, the question, the, the question bubble above his head is, you know, hey boys, how's the water this morning? And the next picture is the two young fish going, water? What the hell's water? <laughs> and you know I, you know as someone who is now moving into the more older fish kind of <laughs> right there with you yeah. part of that picture um I don't think we value this concept um of uh of young leaders being productive innovative accomplishment driven as we are as humans 
and the parallel harmony that has to come from having mentorship and mm-hmm. people who are much wiser and can help guide their I think there's going to be a shift in this dynamic of leadership, particularly since we're moving through generational changes and things like right, you know, kind of right now. And so, um, you know, kind of changing these roles, responsibilities, and particularly the relationships we have, not only within work, but without work and what that means for those leaders. I think those are some of the elements that we um, that we definitely also need to need to consider. Um, and I think this mentorship piece um, is really an, a significant component to that. And how do we create leadership structures to foster mentorship as a as an ideal? You yeah. know, um, we see this in our older physicians. I mean, good lord, the institutional and human knowledge bared in in some of these older, more wiser, experienced people because they they fall against the you know kind of americana of you know kind of the individualism and success and power and all of those kind of things we miss out on that richness and i think if we can create structures that allow for some more of that mentoring and valuing of those those historical narratives and in modernizing them i think that's one piece you know kind of the other big piece is um the uniqueness of roles of leaders particularly the further you get up you know, I will tell you as a chief medical officer, there was one of me, one. Right. And the only people I got to talk to was when I came to see people like you and others, like <laughs> you were doing this. You know. So on purpose, creating communities of practice for these yeah. where they are seen and recognized. And as there's a pediatric psycho- a psychiatrist by the name of Dan Siegel, who wrote a book called Mindsight. I love, he has a st- saying that as humans, all we want to do is feel felt. Mm. And so how do we teach leaders and create spaces where they feel felt? And when they feel felt, they can then create spaces. Creed. Right. So, um, so I, you know, kind of those are the things that, you know, kind of we're really thinking about is how do we create this new leadership value and mentoring and coaching and, and, you know, kind of fostering those things. And then obviously these communities of practice where people can fundamentally feel felt and cascade that feeling down into those they serve makes a lot of sense. Remind me, we're going to connect you all with the folks at the Modern Elder Academy who are building up that idea of wisdom, wisdom at work, um, just that opportunity. And I think I see a great synergy with the Institute for Healthcare Excellence and their their work. Wonderful. But I want to I want to project into the future a little bit. Yeah. If we if we were to envision a future in which leader loneliness, I'm not going to say is eliminated because I think this yeah. is always, you know, it's not a static thing, but it's limited. Yeah. So we've we've built that. What does that future look like? in terms of um, the environment for leaders as well as the environment for those they lead? Yeah, you know, hopes and dreams, gosh. Um, So one of the things I always talk about, um, particularly when I'm teaching or or kind of, again, naming some of the the water, is, you know, our current healthcare system in the United States, different across the globe, but I think there's elements of this elsewhere, is that we're still living in this, you know, 16th and 17th century belief of the Cartesian split, <laughs> um, where science got the body and the church got the mind and the spirit. <laughs> and, um, and my hope is that by fostering leaders 
reconnection and reintegration of their mind, body, spirit, that it will translate all the way through the system level. And the healthcare system, as a consequence, will then be set within a larger communal experience that we, you know, kind of build. I think we're starting to see these community-based organizations, just as you were talking about, that are are recognizing the social determinants of health where people must reclaim their own health away from the disease-based model of, of modern day health care. And that health care really is, you know, as we've talked about, is sick care. It's a it's an ode to pathology. I mean, the system is built on disease and needs disease in order to exist. And we keep asking it to be something other than it's than what that delivers. If we can if we can foster our leaders to learn about, okay, this disease-based model of care must sit within a larger community of connection and recognizing the social determinants of health, it's almost as if we are, you know, kind of the bubble that they that they that they kind of that preserved veil that they had got popped during the pandemic actually was opened the doors to our opportunities, the system to get out of the island of disease and move into and support community-based innovations and um, opportunities where people can reclaim health, where they live, who they live with, and how they live their lives on a day-to-day basis. So long-term, way long-term hope, that would be my hope. (laughs) I love that vision. I think that's that, you know, it's everything we know about science that feels so, the science of thriving, right? Yeah. It feels so abstract, fundamentally centers on connection, connection with self, oh, connection with others, totally. connection in the community and what you've just described. I love the idea that that what we burst in that terms of that veil is a little bit of that that myth of individualism. Not that individual actors don't matter, but that they exist in this broader ecosystem. And perhaps now that we see that, now that the water is maybe dyed blue and we're aware that it's there yeah we can we can make those kinds of changes so thank you so much for that vision thank you for putting uh the paper together and we'll put a link to it for folks to access um at ceocoalition.com slash podcast so that they can read this because i think it's really helpful the way you've you've named things you've built the structures around how to think about what their impacts are and given people the foundations for how to start to work towards that future vision in which we are centered on connection. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much. Thanks for all the work that you've done. You know, thank you. A large part of this foundation for us to build this work from. So thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of the Caring Greatly podcast, please subscribe and rate us on Apple, Google, or Spotify. For links related to Dr. Clark's episode, please visit ceocoalition.com slash podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of Vocera, part of Stryker. This is Liz Bohm, executive strategist at Stryker and host of the Caring Greatly podcast. Thank you for caring greatly. Thank you.